Do you think they'll have a third host in reserve? Not likely. Laws of Tigers podcast in pairs. Just as we do. As we do. Because we killed our third host. Uh, <laughs> only two of us. You gotta stop saying that on mic. <laughs> <laughs> the guilt, Leo, the guilt is eating me alive. One of these days, one of someone with authority is going to hear our podcast. <laughs> Be doomed. Are these two admitting to murder in between all the dune lore? Is that what we're hearing? <laughs> At the very least, send them the horny jail. That's like the... <laughs> Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And we are back with another installment of our Children of Dune book club coverage. Oh, exciting. We're hitting a milestone today, Leo. Yeah. The halfway point. Celebrating with like near death and murders and things. <laughs> Wild. Absolutely. But hey, before we get ahead of ourselves, sure. Yeah. Let's take care of some housekeeping. Yep. As always, today's episode will be spoiler free up through the pages and books that we have covered thus far. So as long as you are caught up on the reading, you're good to go. Indeed. A reminder that the best way to support us is to become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash gamjabar. You'll get cool benefits like ad-free episodes, boo ads, yay, no ads, weekly <laughs> bloopers, and an invite to our exclusive Discord server where yes. <laughs> we have a hyperactive meme channel. The memes are custom made too. It's very impressive. Y'all are like <laughs> making wild. memes. It's the best. <laughs> Y'all are great. And of course, we have to have a huge shout out for our Quisats Haderach level patron, Case Aiken. Yes. Case, I would lend you my poison tipped Chris knife to kill that second tiger any day. Any day of the week. Indeed. And astute listeners might notice we didn't say another name this time. It's true. We also want to shout out. Nate Hyde, who has been a longtime Kwisatz Haderach level patron. But has betrayed us. <laughs> in the best way possible. Yeah. Like, if this is how you're going to stab me in the back, this is how I prefer it. Stab me in the back with a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Nate actually messaged us this week to apologize for having to drop his patron level down from the Kwisatz Haderach level because he's having a baby. He's having a baby. He made a human. <laughs> First of all, Huge congratulations, Nate. This is super exciting news. We wish you and your family all the health and happiness. Also, we just want to say, how fucking dare you apologize? Yeah. For <laughs> dropping your patron level down. We are <laughs> humbled that you have supported us this long and have been a Kwisatz Haderach level patron for so long. Your child deserves your money before us. So once of again, course. thank you for your amazing support, Nate. And we wish you and your family the best. Thanks, Nate. We appreciate you. Now, another great way to support the podcast 
is to get yourself some cool swag on our merch store at gomjabartshop.com. Clearly, we're going to have to release some baby material for Nate. Yeah. <laughs> we've got art. We've got stickers. We've got hoodies, T-shirts, a tote bag, and so much more. So go check all of that out. Get yourself some great swag and support this show. Gomjabartshop.com. Hell yeah. Finally, one last reminder. The next episode, if you check the schedule, the next episode is a mailbag episode. So email us questions, theories, hot takes at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. We will get right back to you. Within the calendar year is our promise. Right. Uh, <laughs> it'll Gom take Jabbar a while. Guarantee. <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we promise. <laughs> Send us an email. Say hi. We love to hear from you. We do. All right. That's housekeeping. Y'all know the drill for these book club episodes. We've been through this before. Mm. We'll start today with a summary of today's reading. Then we'll dive into a couple of takeaways and we'll wrap up our discussion by chomping down on some yummy spice morsels. Mm. So before we do all of that, let's take a short break, but don't go anywhere, folks, because there's more Children of Dune to talk about right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get into chapter 25. Today's first chapter begins with Jessica, Alfali, and the other Fidakin hiding in Red Chasm Siege. Now, we learn that Jessica sent a message to Stilgar informing him of Alia's possession and demanding trial. Alfali also reports that word has come from Siege that the twins have gone missing. Uh oh. <laughs> Stilgar, didn't you like quintuple the guard? <laughs> like, all right, I've got two bits of news. One, I have a thousand guards protecting them. Two, they're gone. <laughs> Tough look for those guards. Yeah, it's <laughs> brutal. Very unfortunate first day on the job for those guards. Yeah. A messenger arrives from Stilgar, and it's none other than... Duncan motherfucking Idaho himself. Holy shit. Woo! It's suddenly hotter <laughs> in my room. The sweat <laughs> is out of control. Alfali and Jessica are understandably suspicious. My dude is the husband to the cone teen, <laughs> a.k.a. Alia, a.k.a. Baron Harkonnen. How can we trust him? Really? Why would he be here to help them? Right. Jessica, on the other hand... Begins to get a feeling that this is leading up to what Leto 2 was kind of warning her about. Yeah. And she's like, okay, he's probably here to abduct me, and I'm supposed to go with it because Leto 2 said so. Alfali protests. <laughs> it's like, don't fucking go with him. Are you kidding? He's got metal eyes. <laughs> but Jessica reassures him. Quote, I trust this man with my life, and it is not the first time. End quote. Uh. Really beautiful to think about her history with perhaps not this exact flesh uh <laughs> the 
man behind the Tleilaxu eyes, so to speak. Right. He even asks her in the scene, have you ever been mad at me? And she says, <laughs> I've never been mad at you, except for that one drunken time in the first <laughs> book. time you got super drunk and were calling me a witch and a traitor. Like, sucked, dude. Right. But still, in all the years they've known each other, it's very touching for her to say, I've never once held anything against you, except for that one drunken night. Internally, behind this sort of brave facade she's putting on for all folly's uh, sake, she's less confident about this whole abduction plan. But she's Ducleto's partner and knows to cultivate this air of bravura because she is, after all, also the mother of a god. Right. She doesn't want to be like, well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, good right. for her to say, trust me, Alfali, everything's going to be fine. Now, they also share a moment of camaraderie regarding Alia, which I found really, really touching. Jessica going, listen, I know Alia's condition. What's happening to her is, is my fault. And Duncan's like, yo, same. Yeah. I was right there with her. I was her husband. And I let that happen. For them to have that in common in this moment's really beautiful and poignant. Yeah. And I think also maybe one of the first and only times Jessica admits out loud to someone else that Alia's condition is her fault, that she yeah. oh, bears true. responsibility for what has happened and is happening to her daughter. Really humanizing, for sure. Now, Jessica orders Alfali to take the Fidekin and go to Stilgar. And she leaves in an ornithopter with Duncan. Now they have this heartbreaking exchange in the ornithopter where they both basically acknowledge the barren sized elephant in the room. Yeah. <laughs> the suspensored <laughs> elephant in the room. <laughs> Quote I am still Atreides, Jessica said. Alia is not. Have no fear, he grated. I still serve the Atreides. Alia is no longer Atreides, Jessica repeated. You needn't remind me, he snarled. Now shut up and let me fly this thing. End quote. <laughs> the audacity to speak to the mother of Mwadib like that. <laughs> I know, but also fair. She's yeah. like, your wife is fucking gone, dude. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. She's like, your wife is yeah. He's like, shut <laughs> up, God. <laughs> Brutal. Jessica, read the room. <laughs> yeah, truly. Now, Duncan finally reveals to Jessica that he is taking her to the Carinos on Seleucus Secundas, which every time I say that sounds like a fun, like after school special. Like, come on down to the Carinos, you know? <laughs> Right next to the Chuck E. Cheese. Right next to the Chuck E. Cheese. You got the Carinos, you got the Chuck E. Cheese. It's great. <laughs> uh, but he's not doing this. He's not following through with this abduction plan because Alia has ordered him to. To be clear, quote, not Alia, he said. We do the preacher's bidding. He wants you to teach Faradin as you once taught Paul. End quote. Ooh. <sighs> Intense. But also, th this another thought that I had was blindly following the preacher's orders, right? Loyal to keeping House Atreides safe very well could be the preacher's kind of message for Duncan Idaho, right? Yeah. Do what you do best. And I joked before that that's <laughs> sex. Uh, and then I joked that it's murder. 
But now I'm starting to think it's follow orders, be loyal. And in this case, it's like threading this very fine needle of loyalty. Still, something Duncan Idaho can do better than anybody. Right. That's such a great point. I think this is truly what the preacher meant when he told Duncan to do what he does best. And that, as we know, is serve the Atreides. And here he is doing that. Because after all, Alia is no longer an Atreides. Mm. All right, let's move on to chapter 26. We are next to the Chuck E. Cheese on <laughs> Seleucus Secundus at Carino Castle. And we join Faradin and Wincisia. She has just revealed the truth of Operation Tony the Tiger to her son, and he's processing it while she sort of nervously waits. Faradin finds himself dealing with some mixed emotions. Right. Quote, Why do I feel a sense of loss? He wondered. What am I losing? The answer was obvious. He was losing his carefree days, the time for those pursuits of the mind which so attracted him. He found that he resented this deeply. End quote. Wow. Faradin <laughs> going through the same thing I went through when I graduated like college. I was like, oh, fuck. What am I losing? <laughs> oh, yeah. Carefree days of just do what people tell you to. You mean I have to fucking build a life now? Right. <laughs> no. Get a job? A job? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah, I mean, being emperor is no small task, right? He would lose the life he currently has if he accepted this. Right. We do get a real sense in this chapter through this conversation between Wencisia and her son, just how much smarter Faradin seems to be than his mother. I'm curious if you got the same sense, but for me, it seems pretty obvious that Wencisia is kind of an... An idiot is too strong a word, but she's not right. as sharp as her son is. Like, no. he is much more intelligent than her. For example, he questions what will happen if this Operation Tony the Tiger plot fails. And when Sissy's response, I, I think I stopped reading this point and said, <laughs> what, out loud? Because her response is literally, quote, how can it fail? End quote. Son, we got... <laughs> Two tigers. Like, I get how you could see one tiger failing, but did I say we had two? Did I forget to mention that part? Like, uh, it, this is wild to me. It is unbelievable to me that she doesn't have a backup plan or that she hasn't considered the fact that this plan could even fail. He's like, we're attempting to assassinate 8,000 you know, 8, light years from here. The twin superpower children of a god. <laughs> with tigers and she's right. like yeah guaranteed win <laughs> what are you what's wrong right she's the kind of D, D player that thinks they're gonna roll a nat 20 every <laughs> turn she's out here with nat ones i will say to your to your point i got the same impression i think she's it, it's funny because frank has like written a character i believe her intentions and her like thought processes I believe her like naivety about some of these characters. She just doesn't know how capable some of these characters are. And I have to remind myself, she's one of the most, I mean, forward, non-Benny Gesserit female characters that we've met, right? Yeah. And so that she's completely missing out on these. She's like, oh, he's so hard to read. I don't know. Maybe. 
Maybe he's hard to read for normal people, but I don't know if he would be hard to read for Irulan or Jessica or Guy Ellen Mohan. You know, like, yeah, it's so interesting to think about her as this kind of representative of maybe a lay person amidst all these like super powered uh, peak, you know, cream of the crop human capability people. Mm, that's a great point. We spend most of this story and most of these books with like the top. of people in the universe. (laughs) Right, yeah. So yeah, I'm sure even our view is a bit biased. We're like, what? You can't read the minutia in the room when this (laughs) year? God, you're the dumbest character we've met so far. It's like, oh, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, savage stuff. But again, we see sort of the intelligence level disparity here between Faradin and Winsisia. Right. He also, in this chapter calls out her selfishness in all of this. This whole operation, Tony the Tiger, wasn't just for Faradin, so that Faradin could become emperor. Quote, You didn't do them for me. You did it for House Carino. And you are House Carino right now. I've not been invested. End quote. Yeah. And he kind of doubles down on scaring the shit out of her because she kind of is like, oh no, oh no, he's going to back out he also reveals look i know how you trained these tigers and i'm not happy about it right like it goes against my principles how you went about this and i want to make clear (laughs) i would not have done the same it is very perceptive of him but he's like so you have two tigers trained to hunt twins twin children right she's like yeah he's like how'd you train them She's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of an obvious question. Right. She's like, he's so perceptive and scary. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. She is panicked, though, in this moment. She's wondering, oh, no, is Faradin going to refuse? Is he going to back off on this? Have I pushed him too far? Have I gone a step too far by murdering children to help my son gain the throne? Right. But we see that Faradin decides to basically wait and see what happens. He says he's going to see how this all plays out and, quote, perhaps I'll become emperor, end quote. (laughs) Jesus. Which is amazing. Such a Gen Z response from him. Just the most chill as fuck, like disassociated response of like, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Lead lead the entire known universe. Yeah. Let me rip more of this bong, and then I'll think about it. <laughs> then I'll think about it. <laughs> also, I feel like if Jessica was here, she'd be like, this really is the age of the shrug, right? Like, yeah. that's the same, like, eh, Great perhaps. Great point. <laughs> yeah, the ultimate shrug. Maybe I'll be emperor. <laughs> oh, maybe I'll be emperor of billions and trillions of people. <sighs> maybe. We'll <see>. <laughs> <laughs> this chapter ends when Faradin basically leaves the room. This conversation is over. He is headed to his favorite place in Carino Castle, the library. And we get a bit of inner monologue from him that reveals a kind of sad truth about power and responsibility. Quote, Faradin could feel himself driven now by the desires of all those whose fortunes rode with him. He found it strange that he could not pin down his own desires in this. End quote. Dude, I, I don't hold it against you. It's a complicated bag. <laughs> like, yeah, the, you know, this isn't like, do you want a cookie right now? This is a huge question. 
and there's a lot of plots and plans within plans, yeah, it's got to be super confusing and uh, murky. Right. And it's that last line in particular that gets me is he feels the weight of responsibility, other people's expectations. Yeah. And it's harder and harder for him to figure out what he wants. You know, this like putting other people ahead of yourself mentality that many of us struggle with, like a lot of people pleasers out there know what this feels like. Right. You worry so much about making other people happy and doing what is expected of you that your own desires and your own feelings get lost in the mix. So my heart does go out to Faradin in this. He's got a lot of responsibility on his shoulders and he feels that pressure from everyone who expects things of him. Yeah. It, he's having to ask himself who he is in this moment as well. Yeah. Well, out of that heady conversation, let's talk about Tony and Tina the Tiger fucking yes. <laughs> attempting to murder some Holy children. shit. My God. Chapter 27. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We've got Leto and Ganema facing off against the deadly pair of Laza Tigers on Arrakis. Now, I just want to point out, I've read this book. I know it happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was so stressed <laughs> <laughs> when Ganema gets caught on the rock and it's <gasps> like, I'm stuck. And Leto has to stand up, putting his head within like clawing range. <laughs> I was like, ah! ah! <laughs> it's insane. Right. The people God. on the subway next to you were like, is he okay? Should we call, <laughs> go call the doctor? No, it's New York. People are like, don't look at him. <laughs> we'll get involved if we look at him. That's true. <laughs> Let the man scream to his book. It's fine. <laughs> it was so, I mean, it's just good. It's just fun, good writing, intense. I like how cerebral Leto and Ganema are through this sequence, despite the fact that they're also like clearly <laughs> dealing with a very life and death situation. And I also love that they're, Various calculations in an unspoken way turn out to be spot on. Yeah. The encounter goes as it goes. Gripping, exciting. And the twins are able to kill both tigers with poisoned Chris knives. But Ganema is injured not once, but twice. Frank, how dare you? God, it, it visceral. It's like, she's like a claw got me. I'm bleeding openly into my still suit. I was like, oh, no. Oh, that's so brutal. And then she gets caught on the arm, and she describes the cut, like, following the twisting of her arm as she switched the knife. Like, gen- genuinely, it. I had a feeling of deep sympathy for this character. And we don't get as much time in Ganima's head as we do in Leto's. But still, I, I find myself very attached to Ganema as a character, which, again, yeah. I think is a testament to Frank's writing. Now, Leto helps Ganema tend to her wounds, but they can't, like, bandage her well, because if he does, people will go, oh, you had help bandaging this. And as we're about to find out, she has to, in this scenario, be alone. She has to have appeared to have done this herself, even if she did have some help. We finally get... The plan that these two have been cooking up. And we're finally hearing Leto is going to go to Jakarudu. And Gani, Ganima, is going to return to Siege Tabur to tell everybody that her brother was killed. And as part of this, I just wanted to point out, 
they reveal how Jakarudu became the myth that it is, like how it mm -hmm. faded from legend to myth. And I thought that that was, it's a beautiful little moment because basically, again, these twins figured out this lie that was being perpetuated by millions of people. <laughs> Effectively, the smugglers changed the name, isolated it, and protected the place's autonomy through that sort of enigma and mystery of what is it, where is it? And it used to have another name that people might remember and say, oh, that place is gone and forgotten, you know? Right. But it's not. And I thought that was so cool. Kind of a nice little world-building touch here that the smugglers were so directly involved. Yeah. Now, their goodbye as they part is genuinely heartbreaking. Quote, Leto, staring at his sister, felt a sudden wrenching sense of loss. It was a deep pain which shot through his breast. He and Ganema must separate now. For all of those years, since birth, they had been as one person. But their plan demanded now that they undergo a metamorphosis, going their separate ways into uniqueness, where the sharing of daily experiences would never again unite them as they had once been united. End quote. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's incredibly heartbreaking stuff. And it reminds us how close these twins have been. Again, a reminder that they're maybe the only pre-born Kwisatz Hatteraks in the whole universe. Right. So the only person they've been able to relate to has been each other. Right. And here, after nine years and who knows how long in their other memory they've spent together, they will be separating. And the future is uncertain. They don't know if they'll ever again be united. And it's gut-wrenching stuff for the, the two of them. I'll also say the moment that, that like I actually teared up at was, okay, here's, here's the quote. Ride swiftly, my good friend, she whispered. I'll come back to you, my only friend, he said. <laughs> God. End quote. It's so sad. Maybe we take the ad break here so I can wipe my eyes. <laughs> Same. I'll just do it now. God, it's like the love they have as characters is so palpable. Oh, God. Okay. Back on track. <laughs> Out of the emotions. Uh, at the end of the chapter, um, we see this incredible sequence where Ganema begins subjecting herself to this sort of self-hypnosis. And I wanted to point out that Frank does this incredible job with just the narrative voice of the book, the, the actual text of her thought process shows us how fully she's believing him dead. Yeah. So much so that if a truthsayer were to read her kind of intentions, is she lying about Leto's death, they would only get honesty and genuineness back. Like, oh, she's 100% serious about this. Yeah. It's wild. And it worked. She basically you know, even remembers the sight of his body in the ground next to the tigers. And when the worm passed, that she couldn't even see him on the back of it because her compulsion was so successful. Her hypnosis was so successful. And we get this quote as she heads back to Siege to Burr. Quote, nothing must prevent her from telling how her brother had perished, saving her from the tigers. End quote. Huh. Rage and grief in equal measure. Right. And to inflict that upon herself through the hypnosis. Powerful stuff. Yeah. 
and, and look, there's a silver lining here too, because a weird side effect of this hypnotic technique is that the cacophony of inner voices, these pre-born other lives that live within her head and in Leto's and Analia's that torture them day in and day out have been silenced suddenly after she successfully pulls off the hypnosis. We get this quote, quote, as she did this, she found the inner world becoming silent, blanked away from intrusion into her consciousness. It was a side effect she had not expected, end quote. So interesting. That's a big reveal. Yeah. You know, something that Leto, Ganema, Alia have all been struggling with their whole lives, but particularly in this book is this question of their preborn nature and how to manage it, how to deal with it, how to use it the right way, but not let it take you over like has been done to Alia. And seemingly Ganema has perhaps stumbled on one path to finding peace within their inner lives. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Fascinating. And she has that thought, that like paradoxical thought where she's like, I'll have to tell Leto about that. If only he wasn't dead. <laughs> right. Ah, such good writing. Such yeah, good writing. It's fun. All right. Off the back of that incredible chapter, let's dive into chapter 28. Yeah. We are back at the Chuck E. Cheese on Seleucus Segundus. <laughs> yeah. And this time... We're at a meeting between Faradin, Wensisia, and Tykenek. The three are discussing Duncan Idaho's proposal to bring them Lady Jessica. And so far, their analysis of this whole situation seems to boil down to, uh, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. We see in this three-way conversation, once again, how Faradin and... I would venture even Tykenik seem to be just so much brighter than Wincisia. Yeah. Hilariously, Wincisia is just agreeing with whoever spoke last. Faradon will say something and she's like, yeah, 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 that sounds good. And then Tykenik will say something and she's like, yeah, I agree with that. And she doesn't really seem to be adding much to the conversation. Faradon and Tykenik are constantly interrupting her and basically talking over her to each other. Yeah, there is this sort of sense of frustration from her, clearly. Like, she's like, oh, I wish they'd stop interrupting me. But it's fascinating because she knows she can because Faradin is necessary for all of her plans. Like, she's <laughs> built her plans on Faradin being on board. Yeah. And as he ultimately controls himself, he has all of the power. And this is like, it's just a flawed plan on her part. Like, she cannot win in a in a confrontation with Faradin. So anytime she's like, no, stop, he's like, shut up. Anyway, <laughs> it's it really interesting, interesting moment. Yeah, and there's actually a clear example of this relationship between Wensissi and Faradin when she brings up Javid at one point in the conversation and Faradin dismisses him because to him, there's obvious signs that Javid is playing a double game. He's a double agent here. He can't be trusted. And Wincisia is like unable to see that. Quote, he was suddenly angry with her denseness. Take my word for it, mother. The signs are there. I'll explain later. I'm afraid I must agree, Tykenig said. End quote. 
Tychonic. Poor Tychonic, dude. <laughs> dude. Watched her kill multiple Sardaukar people. He's like, how do I say this? Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Plus one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Very delicate and political way for him to be like, yeah, no, Faradin's right. <laughs> You're wrong. Tychonic liked Faradin's comment on her stupid post. <laughs> <laughs> the conversation eventually circles back to Idaho's offer and what to do with Lady Jessica. And they seem to be leaning towards bringing Lady Jessica to Castle Carino, to accepting Idaho's offer. Right. Because despite the dangers of trying to keep a Bene Gesserit captive, they figure that she would be one massive bargaining chip in their bid to regain the throne, right? Like, they speak of her almost as currency, and what bigger currency than the mother of Wadib, than one of the most influential Atreides and straight-up influential women in the entire Imperium right now. Right. Plus, like, the sole acting force of the Bene Gesserit plans at a moment. Like, she is a bargaining chip against <laughs> a few of the major forces in the universe. Yeah, exactly. Still, Faradin is a bit cautious. He wants to play it safe, so he tasks Tychonic to get back to Idaho, little follow-up email action, and inquire further about this deal. What are the details? What's the fine print? Quote, When we think we know something, that's precisely the moment when we should look deeper into the thing. End quote. Mm, love it. Showing some maturity there. Good yeah. job, Faradin. I'm impressed. The conversation does briefly turn toward Arrakis and the Atreides, and we get a little glimpse here of the intellectual and philosophical side of Faradin. We know he's kind of a bookworm, his favorite room is the library, and we see some of that in action here. It is clear that there is this almost <laughs> like Gen Z boomer divide between Faradin and Wincisia slash Tychonic, because... They have differing opinions on what it means to wield power and to rule. Right. I also get this undercurrent of naivete from Faradin, though. I'm curious if you read it this way as well. Because we have to remember, he's still, at the end of the day, just this rich kid who has never truly had any responsibility in his life. And basically everything he knows about anything is from reading books. Right. Right. He hasn't exactly like been through the ringer or had to truly rule an empire before. So he's just like basing what he knows off of history he's read in books. I did get a sense like, yes, Faradin may have some more forward thinking ways of looking at power and how to wield it and how to be emperor. But he's also a bit naive because there are some harsh realities that he just has no idea about. He has no experience with. Yeah. Definitely lacking the, like, street smarts. <laughs> he's, he's all theory, no practice. He's all theory. Yeah, exactly. So this chapter ends when the conversation ultimately sort of circles back to the same point as before. Yes, I think we want Jessica as a captive in Castle Carino, but let's get back to Idaho and play this cautiously. And that's sort of where they settle by the end of this chapter. Kind of a wait-and-see approach. Right. 
which carries us into our final chapter today, chapter 29. In our final chapter, we join Ganima as she makes her trek back to Siege de Burr. Now, emotionally, Ganima's a whirlwind, as you can imagine. Her brother's dead. In Fremen fashion, she's putting aside her grief. She acknowledges the grief, she puts it aside, and sharpens it into rage. Specifically, rage against House Carino, who, to be clear, <laughs> killed her brother. <laughs> Quote, she needed only a target, and that, obviously, was House Carino. She longed to see Faradin's blood spilled on the ground at her feet. <laughs> oh my god. End quote. <laughs> Golly, uh, listen, wouldn't want to be Faradin in that moment. Yeah. Now, she arrives at one of the Siege entrances, only to find Palimbasha and a woman standing guard. Now, it turns out Palimbasha, which is who's the grandson of a knave, is the one with the remote control for the tigers. He's like frustratedly hitting a button, like, come back, tigers. (laughs) You killed the kids. Come back. Tony, Tony, come in. Tony. Quote, this meant that another Nabate family had gone over to House Carino. End quote. Uh, Tough look. Yeah. I mean, this is shocking. Like, we saw in... Dune Messiah, that there are Fremen sympathetic to non-Atradian causes. But the fact that they are living among the sieges, shoulder to shoulder with other Fremen, that they're actually like part of the same communities, seems like a new, bold evolution to the kind of the, the sort of rot that's happening of the Atradian name within the Fremen. In Stilgar's speech, you know? Like, in Stilgar's speech, in Siege to Burr. Yeah. <laughs> uh, presumably under Stilgar's eye. Brutal. Uh, brutal brutal revelation here. Yeah. She decides in this moment that she's got some uh, some rage to spare. She's like, I'm going to kill Faradin <laughs> for sure. Like, I'm going to watch his blood pool on my feetsies. But right. I do have some extra rage. So... I'm going to murk this guy. I'm going to fucking murk Palimbasha, take him out, yep. and capture the woman. Because, you know, then I can, like, torture her and get answers from her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, typical nine-year-old thinking here, by the way. Right, right. Now, she calls upon her knowledge from the other lives and perfectly crafts. This is so incredible. Crafts and then shoots a poison blow dart at Palimbasha. Amazing. His, like, legs give out as he's still laughing about some joke that she made, and he's dead before he hits the ground. It's insane. She runs up on the woman, holds a Chris knife to her waist, calmly telling her, quote, My knife is poisoned. You may let go of Palimbasha now. He is dead. End <laughs> Only quote. facts. <laughs> Declarative <laughs> Ganema. Terrifying. <laughs> and... Ultimately, I'm just excited for uh, Taken 7, the starring not Liam Neeson, but actually starring Ganema as yes. uh, she <laughs> brings that franchise to a new sci-fi level of excellence. <laughs> right. I have a certain set of skills. They're actually infinite because of my other memory. I have all the skills. I have every skill. <laughs> I will find you. I will watch your blood pool at my feet. <laughs> You best hope your name isn't Faradin, bitch. 
<laughs> the the woman, the Fremen woman's like, it's not. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. <laughs> wow. All right. And on that incredible note, we wrap up today's reading. What an intense set of chapters. Well, as the blood settles, uh, literally and figuratively, we're going to take a quick break. But stick around. When we're back, we're going to talk about our two key takeaways from today's episode. So stick around. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, folks. Let's get into our key takeaways for today's chapters. First up, we have Faradin. We get a lot of Faradin in today's chapters, and so we wanted to dedicate this first takeaway to exploring some of his character in more depth. Now, to be clear, we can't exactly be comprehensive here because we haven't finished the book, so we don't know what the rest of his story looks like. So what we'll be focusing on instead is what the Dune Encyclopedia tells us about his background, his childhood, his upbringing, what has brought him to this point in the book, and then, of course, what we've learned thus far in the reading. Right. So first, let's talk about Faradin's lineage, because it might surprise you, it certainly surprised me, to learn that he's actually a Fenring. Whoa! Hell yeah. The Dune Encyclopedia tells us that he was born Faradin Fenring to parents Princess Wincesia Carino and Count Dalek Fenring. Now, Faradin is the only remaining male grandchild of the disgraced former Emperor Shaddam IV, who we all know and love. So after her husband's death, when Sissia actually changes her son's surname to Carino. And so that's how we end up with Farad and Carino in the book now. Right. He does have a sister named June, who is his only recorded sibling, but hold your thoughts on her, more on her in just a little bit. Right. So let's look at his childhood. Might surprise you that on the soft garden planet of Seleucus Secundus had a rough childhood. By all accounts, let's look at the first few years of his life. Now, his mother and father never married, and his father abandoned them when he was two years old. Oh. Now, his grandfather, Shaddam IV, died when he was only three. When he was four, don't want to give him too many years of peace, his father returns to claim only his daughter. Oh my God. Like, I want my children, child. <laughs> papa? What about me, Papa? No. <laughs> and took her to live with him on Giddy Prime. Brutal. So, Faradin was raised by his mother and tutors and lived a very lonely and isolated childhood. And you gotta think, the woman, like, ordering twins to be murdered by tigers might not be the best with children. <laughs> like, yeah, might not be the most nurturing and loving and supportive mothers. 
Yeah. And, you know, in, in fact, she isn't. We're going to talk about their relationship in just a minute here. But quickly, I wanted to touch on this quote from the encyclopedia because it gives us a lot of insight into this time in his life. And it's actually from an unfinished autobiography that Faradin was writing. This is what he wrote. Quote, I must have been an intolerably solemn child, always with my nose in a book or Ray body working on self-defense exercises. Mother desired my company only at midday meal. Lunch for me, breakfast, breakfast for her. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> How I used to dread those hours. She'd stretch out on her lounge chair and question me about my lessons, always reminding me about my duties as the future emperor. She was so hungry for power that she almost convinced me of its growth, but most of the time I just wanted to get out of that room and away from her eyes. End quote. Is our, our girls waking up at like one in the afternoon? <laughs> what the fuck is happening? <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, I mean, we could spend a whole episode dissecting that quote and unpacking everything in there, uh, particularly when Sissy's schedule. But to me, I think the clear takeaway from this entry in his unfinished autobiography is that Fraden didn't have the warmest of upbringings and his relationship with his mother was not full of love, care, and attention. Right, yeah. He's always been a tool for her to the throne. Despite her whack-as-fuck schedule, which I really <laughs> want to talk about, but I am not going to get sidetracked here, when Sissia plays a huge role in shaping Faradin's views on House Carino and House Atreides and Imperial history in general. This is one thing, at least, that she is attentive about in her son's training. Right. She basically spends his entire childhood feeding him the idea that he is meant to be emperor, that House Carino are the rightful rulers of the empire, and that the throne was stolen from them. Right. And we see, even in today's readings, she hasn't exactly stopped forcing this ideology on him, right? She's out here plotting to murder children to put him on the throne. So this has been a constant, his whole life from his mother. And it worked. Except <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> Basically, though she had this sort of propaganda campaign her whole life of we were robbed, we were stolen from us, Faradin basically was like, nah, they won. Uh, they did a great job. Damn. Look at their numbers. 61 billion in 12 years. <laughs> look at, look at that. It's impressive. There's a lot of planets sterilized. <laughs> there. Check out my Muad'Dib trading card. It's signed. I bought it online. It's got to be authentic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, we get a sense that Faradin is kind of a fan of House Atreides and was studying them with this sort of interest, this academic interest that borders on personal like reverence. So much so, he actually began, this is kind of cute, adopting the traits of Atreides that he felt were clearly superior. Wow. Yeah. Listen, they won. I'll be like a winner. Though, of course, one thing he learned about this Paul Messiah was that Paul had something Faradin didn't, which was a Benny Gesserit mother like Lady Jessica to train him. Yeah. Now, clearly, 
the Dune Encyclopedia hates Wincesia. <laughs> <laughs> this is hilarious. <laughs> absurd. But listen to this savage quote from the Dune Encyclopedia. <laughs> quote, Wincesia, despite her royal upbringing and early exposure to members of the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, could not even be offered as a comparison, and her son, <laughs> better than any other, knew it. End quote. Holy shit. Oh my God. Damn. The, the Dune Encyclopedia is like, I'm sorry, take a breath between a sentence containing Jessica and a sentence containing Wincesia. They're not, they're not <laughs> worth even remotely comparing. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> Wild stuff. And this, I mean, definitely recontextualizes today's chapter where Wincesia, Faradin, and Tykenik are all debating whether or not to accept Idaho's offer. Like, this has got to be so tempting for Faradin, right? Yeah. Give me Lady Jessica. Hell yeah. And right. this metal-eyed, galaxy-famous warrior, super hot, is like, I'll bring you the mother of your hero, the, the person who helped raise him and train him. Gotta, that's got to just look like a golden ticket. Like, that's got to feel like that Willy Wonka's golden ticket to just the thing of his dreams. Right, a golden ticket to the Golden Lion Throne. Now, to wrap up this takeaway about Faradin, we've been talking a lot about how he has sort of obsessed with the Atreides from like an academic and intellectual perspective, and he aspires to be more like them because clearly they won. They have something the Carinos didn't, so he wants to be more like them. Right. And, you know, as you said, he's out here cosplaying as the Atreides. All of that doesn't mean that he still won't take them down, to be clear. Right. We get this quote from today's readings, and this is Farada's internal thoughts. Quote, Faradin experienced a shiver of excitement tinged with fear. Playing this game to restore House Carino's high seat of power both attracted and repelled him. As titular head of House Carino, heir of Shaddam IV, what a great achievement it would be to restore his line to the Lion Throne. He wanted that. He wanted it. Faradin had found that by repeating this enticing litany to himself several times, he could overcome momentary doubts. End quote. Yeah. So that makes clear that, yes, doubts exist. Maybe he doesn't want to be emperor. Maybe he doesn't think he's up for it. But... It's clear that some of Wencesia's propaganda campaign and all of her messaging through the years has gotten through. And Faradin, being the Carino that he is, can't help but be tempted by power, be tempted by the throne. So to be clear, he's not out here ready to uh, worship the Atreides and work for them. If given the chance, he will overthrow them and take power. I also see that as in line with like a Tradian ascendance to the throne, right? Like, yeah, yeah. There, there is something about it's so easy to sugarcoat Duke Leto Atreides as the great guy he was and the great beard he had, but <laughs> at the end of the day, he was playing a game and cultivating a an air of bravura and politicking like anybody and right. ruling, being the top dog. Being the one in charge, making the calls, getting people killed, trying to keep them alive so that he'd have people following him. You know, there's a very cynical way you could look at all of those people. 
And cynical or not, it's true. Like the facts support Paul, our protagonist, quote unquote, for the first two books, killed 61 billion people. <laughs> so Faradin going, I wouldn't hesitate to take down House Atreides, is in a sense a very Atreidean thing to think as well. So I, I'm kind of mixed on this. I'm not sure if when Sissia fully achieved what she wanted to, I don't know if it's like him buying into her propaganda or the fact that all propaganda is based somewhat in truth and he's kind of gotten to the kernel within this like broad campaign of, mm. sure, like Carino could be on the throne again. It's possible. I could do it. I'll just have to kind of find my own motivation for doing it in a way that's not naive and stupid, the way my mom keeps going, tigers solve every problem. <laughs> Stop sending tigers, mom. <laughs> God. Yeah, that's a great read on it. And uh, I think you're correct that, yes, like the, it is also Atreidean to want power as well, right? Like that is also in Atreides' blood. And in the Imperium, you don't, you don't survive in this galaxy by being nice to people, basically. Right. Totally. So, you know, it is what it is, as they say on Love Island. <laughs> as they say on Gamot, <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> All right. For our second takeaway today, how are you doing? <laughs> how is everybody? Because <laughs> listen, we have officially today reached something of a halfway point in the book. Right. And for this takeaway, we wanted to pause for a moment and kind of take stock of the various major players, who they are where they're at, what they're doing, what their goals and motives are. C consider this your Children of Dune Pepsi halftime report. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brought to you by Gatorade, weirdly. <laughs> I guess it's the same company. Oh, is it? <laughs> is oh, it? No. Oh, no. Coca-Cola owns Gatorade? I don't know. I don't know. Corporate conglomerates are deeply confusing. Capitalism is just a <laughs> web of evil. Right. Well, <laughs> halftime report brought to you by the web of evil. <laughs> That is capitalism. Hell yeah. I'm here for that. That's good. Call it what it is. I'll, I'll tune in. Let's start by talking about the twins, kind of the protagonists of this book, it seems like. Right. We've got Leto and Ganima, pre-born children of Paul Muad'Dib, Atreides, and Chani. They are also the rightful heirs to the Atreidean throne, the children of the past emperor. We witnessed in today's chapters the unfolding of their scheming, all in pursuit of a golden path that they believe is the only way to save humanity. From what, in what way, who's to say? Even they might right. not be fully aware yet. They're kind of following a recipe instruction that they haven't seen the end of. Now, Leto believes the answers to achieving this path are somewhere in the mythical Jakarudu. Um, so I'm going to fake my death and head into the desert alone. Right. Ganima, in that, has to play her part and convince everybody, including herself, tragically, that her brother is dead. Now, ultimately, the twins are attempting to keep all of the forces unleashed by their father in check. Alia, uh, Prescience, the Fremen, the various factions of the Empire. Yeah. All of these things. Tigers, apparently. <laughs> you know. The classic stuff that nine-year-olds are dealing with. <laughs> right, right. Lofty goals, if I had to say so. I mean, saving all of humanity, fixing the empire, draining the swamp. 
that Alia has introduced into the Empire. Making Arrakis Arrakis again. Yeah, you know. Right, making Arrakis Arrakis again. Like, these are all platforms I can get behind, (laughs) is what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm wearing the red hat (laughs) of Leito Kanima. No, that's too far. far. (laughs) Even though I said to make Arrakis Arrakis, I was like, it feels gross. Right. (laughs) Now, speaking of Alia, let's check in on Alia and the Baron. Yeah. These two act as our primary antagonists of the story. But also, notably, one of them is the most tragic characters, I would say, in the entire series. Alia's story has been utterly heartbreaking up to this point. Alia, who has found herself overwhelmed by her responsibilities as regent and her out-of-control other memory, finds herself succumbing to the Baron's control. And the Baron's influence has done nothing but feed her lies and suspicions and just bring out the worst in her, bring out the worst instincts. Right. At this point in the story, she is sleeping with Javid, hasn't quite stabbed him yet, but still sleeping with him. (laughs) Sure. And she has attempted matricide. Cool. And she is openly hostile and suspicious toward everyone around her. Notably, she is losing control of the Fremen, which have been the main power source of the Atreides ever since Paul. Her goals also seem to be pretty much the Baron's goals. Right. To ruin the Atreides' name, to take the throne for herself, and to eliminate any and all threats, perceived or otherwise. Yeah, I'll also point out that there are the moments that the Baron is like an explicit presence in her mind as like someone she's talking to, maybe even someone who's controlling her body during lovemaking or whatever. But it's also clear that all of her thought processes are being affected by his presence. Like, her Alia thoughts are becoming more barren-like, and she's falling into a headspace that is unlike any uh, Atreides that we've met before. Definitely. That's a great point. This abomination is much more subtle than, like, oh no, now I'm a puppet and this Baron is controlling me. Right. It is a slow seeping of the Baron's personality into hers and like truly changing the way she acts and even perceives the world around her. Yeah. Now, another faction, always at at work, uh, is the Bene Gesserit (laughs) and of course, Jessica. Yeah, the devil works hard, but the Bene Gesserit... (laughs) They work twice as hard because there's a Benny Gesserit uh, <laughs> truthsayer by the devil's side. Uh, right. <laughs> the devil's like, what should I do? She's like, you should do this. He's like, okay. Right. Moheim's like, you should do this. <laughs> now, pulled out of retirement for one last job, Jessica has been sent to fix the problem of Alia and bring her grandchildren back under Benny Gesserit influence. As far as we know, She's fully back with the sisterhood. I mean, she certainly has reservations, like some of the chapters about the meeting with her superiors. It was clear they were sort of like threatening her, but she's also a byproduct of Bene Gesserit teachings. And so if anything, I I get the impression she's been convinced that, yeah, the risks of Alia being unchecked and the risks of Ganema and Leto 
dying or being uh, swept up by some other power are too great. So regardless of maybe why she's doing it, she is very much enacting the Bene Gesserit's goal and plan to, you know, protect the Kwisatz Haderach genetic line and maintaining influence over kind of political events. Right. Now, obviously, things have been shaken up at this moment, uh, considering (laughs) she was like, time to go into another meeting, and then someone tried to shoot her with a gun. (laughs) Uh, So she's, you know, swept into this new series of events. Leto's words have come to fruition. You know, you will be abducted and you'll let it happen. And now she's on Seleucus Secundus or on her way to Seleucus Secundus with her mortal enemies, potentially to take on an interesting new pupil. Although we'll have to see what happens with that. Right. Let's check in with the Carinos real quick. We got a lot of House Carino action in today's chapters. What we know thus far is that this disgraced family has obviously been scheming and plotting for decades. Mm Mm-hmm trying to get back to that throne that they want so badly. Just look at what they've been up to. We've learned that the Sardaukar forces have slowly and secretly been trained back up to strength. Maybe not full strength, but still formidable. Right. They're running secret sandworm experiments. So clearly House Carino is out here trying to replicate spice production and break the Arrakis monopoly and the Atreides monopoly. Right. And of course, when Sissia is out here planning Operation Tony the Tiger and attempting to assa- literally assassinate the Atreides heirs to the throne. So House Carino, clearly not just resting on their laurels, they're out here still trying to regain power. And as we discussed in our summaries, most of their hopes at this point lie in the remaining male descendant of Shaddam IV, our boy Faradin Fenring, otherwise known as Faradin Carino. Right. At this point in the story, I would say the Carinos are maybe riding a high. They've had a couple of W's so far. I'm sure they're feeling confident. It's true. As far as they know, Operation Tony the Tiger has been successful. They haven't gotten a full report back yet. But what they will learn is that Leto has been killed. Of course, Ganema surviving is a bit of a snag, but I'm sure they can work around that. Right. They've also just learned that Duncan Idaho is here and he wants to bring Lady Jessica with him. Nice. That's huge. A massive asset. And most importantly to Wencesia, her son Faradin is willing to become emperor. And as we learn from his inner monologues, he even kind of wants it to. Yeah. And of course, the whole plan would fall apart if he rejected it. So Faradin's buy-in is kind of a critical part in all of this for the Carinos. Right. His ascension to the throne might not look the way Wincisia wants it, but a win for Farad and Carino would be a win for House Carino, so I think she'll take it kind of however it happens. Right. Now, next up we have Stilgar and the Fremen, our favorite Navy boy. Truly, in a lot of ways throughout this, represents where the Fremen are as a people in this universe right now. They are torn between the old and new. Yeah. Now, some Fremen are all in on the Atreides train. They are ride or die for Alia, and anything she says is gold, great. This is, you know, we see the Amazons. Alia's kind of guards, female guards, are like this, right? Right. 
Meanwhile, other Fremen are embracing this new lifestyle and find themselves participating in galactic affairs in ways they were never really able to before, like Palimbasha and his political ambitions. And then, of course, there are the Fremen, who completely reject this new world order and are fighting to retain the old ways in the deep desert. We've got Muriz and Asan Tariq and these outcast Fremen who delight in killing off-worlders, right? Mm-hmm. Right. All of these are embodied within our sole character, Stilgar. Yeah. He is really balancing on this stool with the three legs and is feeling guilt in participating in pretty much all of them. <laughs> He's The three sides of his psyche are warring with one another. Right. <laughs> he was all in on Paul for Dune. He was the reason Paul survived and in many ways made Paul the Fremen he became. He was literally the right-hand man of God in Dune Messiah, the governor of Arrakis and in charge of so much, so much responsibility. Out here leading campaigns in the jihad and shit. Yeah. Like his hands are not clean. He's got blood on his hands. He was the one giving the reports. By the way, we've uh, totaled 61 billion. Paul's like, cool, cool. Thought it'd be more. Yeah. And now he finds himself pining for the old days and the old ways. And we see these three books capturing these three shades of Stilgar's personality, but fascinating to see him as this embodiment of the Fremen people. Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's wrap up our halftime report with a check-in with our boy, the Preacher! The Preacher! Theater King. This guy. Ah, the Preacher, an absolute legend. He may seem like a chaos agent, who's just out here to troll everyone with his fake Ixian mask. Throwing hands out of his bag. (laughs) Throwing hands, yeah, right, throwing glitter and hands out of his bag. (laughs) How many fucking hands does this guy have in his bag? Preacher's like, more than you think! (laughs) (laughs) More than is socially acceptable. (laughs) He's so bold. (laughs) So bold. The Preacher has actually been one of the most important characters thus far. Every single faction or person we have talked about in this halftime report is thinking about this guy, is influenced by the preacher. And the biggest question on everyone's lips is, of course, is that Paul Atreides? Is that Paul Atreides come back from the desert? Now, of course, we don't know the preacher's identity, but there have been a number of clues that point toward him being someone very close to Paul. He knows things like the secret way Paul would communicate with Duncan, right? Like that's how he got Duncan's buy-in with this whole Jessica abduction plan. He's out here doing things that only Paul would know. So there are some big hints that even if this isn't Paul himself, this is someone very close to Paul within Paul's inner circle. Right. What are his goals though? What is he doing out here with all this preaching and all this trolling and all of these hands? So many hands! Where does he keep getting them? (laughs) He's got a collection, clearly. You collect Funko Pops, he collects hands. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's got their thing, you know? It's clear to us by this point in the story that the preacher seemingly wants to undo everything that Muad'Dib did. All of the influence that Paul's religion had on the society and government 
in the Imperium, the preacher wants to undo. Right. And that's ambitious. I mean, <laughs> as far as goals go, I know we've said it a couple of times now, but lofty. Lofty. <laughs> lofty. Like none of these characters are out here just trying to like read more books this year. <laughs> Yeah. Or anything normal like yeah, that, you know? Ganima and Leto trying to save humanity. Jessica trying to save humanity by preserving the Kwisatz Haderach and getting rid of Alia. Stilgar trying to preserve the Fremen way of life. Everyone out here has incredibly large lofty goals and the Preacher is no exception. He's out here trying to undo many of the changes which he considers to be rot within society and within government. Right. Introduced by the Messiah Paul Muad'Dib. Wild stuff. I do feel like if you told Winsicia, you have to read more books this year, she would be like, how do I accomplish that with tigers? <laughs> how <laughs> can I teach tigers to read? Can they read to me? Uh, and then she has that plan and you go, I don't think that's going to work. And she goes, how could it not? I'm confused. <laughs> I have two tigers. <laughs> Meanwhile, Faradin's Goodreads account is off the charts. It's like number one ranked Goodreads good reader. He's great. And he leaves reviews. Oh, best Goodreads user. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I mean, so many plans have been set in motion at this point in the book. And so many have already gone wrong. <laughs> so many people have already <laughs> I, yeah. had like best laid plans that have gone astray. Uh, and a lot of stuff right now is up in the air. Right. Like we don't know how a lot of this stuff is going to fall. So this is a very exciting time. And the only safe bet here is that if you were to put down your chome shares on like, yes or no, the end of this book, exciting. I, th I think it's going to be exciting. <laughs> I, you got to leave. I yes. think it's going to be you gotta exciting. You got to go. Yes. Uh, but well, we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. Not right. betting, man. Right. We'll see. Yeah. Also, don't don't play around with your chome shares like that. Just no. Live off that compound interest. Retire. Don't don't play. <laughs> Only that game. bet the chome shares you're willing to lose. That's the that's the motto. Always. Yeah. That's the golden mm -hmm. rule. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. So that's our takeaways for today. A little bit about Farad and Carino, and a halftime report. Now that we have made it halfway through this incredible book, cannot wait to see what unfolds in the second half. Now, next up, of course, we have to chop down on our spice morsels. But before we do, let's let them cool down a little bit and take a short break. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Let's dig in. Delicious smell in the air. It's morsel time. <laughs> <laughs> to quote the Power Rangers. To begin, our first morsel today. Sand snorkel, sand, sand snork, <laughs> snorkel. <laughs> In today's reading, one of my favorite moments is Ganema quickly creating from scratch a blow dart using the tube from her sand snorkel. Amazing. Here's the quote. Quote, Ganema freed her fremkin, slipped the sand snorkel from its bindings. She uncapped the sand snorkel, removed the long filter within it, now she had an open tube, end quote. I wanted to look at these sand snorkels. <laughs> I wanted to know more about them. She gets a tube out of it, but what is it? I'm curious. From the terminology of the Imperium section of Dune, Frank gives us this definition. 
Sand Snork, breathing device for pumping surface air into a sand-covered still tent. Okay, pretty uh, straightforward. Some kind of compact portable AC unit. Nice. I, I could use six of those for my apartment. It'd be wonderful. <laughs> now, naturally, the Dune Encyclopedia gives us some additional details. And naturally, we're going to share those with you right now. You're going to know more about these than you ever wanted to. <laughs> Regarding the thing itself, it consisted of two parts. There is a segmented tube of nine 40-centimeter cylinders made out of spice plastic and weighing only about one and a half pounds. And then the pump, the pump part of the mechanism, uh, that measured, and this really blew my mind, a 10.2 by 26.5 by 8-centimeter cube box thing. Uh, and looking for something that's, like, relatable to that, because I'm not great at centimeters personally, um, it's like a Funko Pop box a little bit taller than that. So we're talking, like, a really small thing. Really neat how compact this is. Now, the Dune Encyclopedia says the Fremen regularly used sand snorkels for, quote, sandstorm burial and predator avoidance, end quote, <laughs> which raises a couple of questions, but it's fine. Nevertheless, we can safely say that in the hands of Ganema Atreides, murking <laughs> hopeful governors is a third <laughs> totally viable application of sand snorkels. Yeah. I feel like anything in her hands could be a deadly weapon. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's talk about morsel number two, Dalek Fenring. Dalek was the second cousin to Count Hazimir Fenring himself. Hmm. And it was actually Shaddam IV who played a little matchmaker for Wencysia and Dalek. He's the one that introduced the two to each other. Right. Of course, as we discussed earlier, that little arrangement didn't exactly end in a happy marriage. And after just two short years, Dalek left Wencysia and the kids, both Faradin and his sister June. Why did he leave, though, is the big question. Mm. The Dune Encyclopedia tells us that Irulan offers a couple of theories. Remember, she's part of the family as well. I'm sure she knows some of the drama going on with her sister, Wencysia. Quote, First of all, she thought that Wencysia's long-standing involvement with various Sardaukar Bashars intimidated Dalek. She also notes that both Wencysia's temper and her hobbies upset Dalek, particularly referring to an incident involving Harkonnen roulette, which deprived Dalek of his jewel collection and almost deprived him of his life. End quote. Jesus. Good Lord. <laughs> and there's so much in that one sentence that I want to get sidetracked on. But let's talk about when Sissy is side of the story here. When Sissy claims that she and Dalek didn't work out because he was a quote, mealy-mouthed historian who wanted to read about combat rather than participate in it. End quote. <laughs> oh my god. Savage. This is brutal. That's so mean. <laughs> I just don't think these two were ever meant to be, despite Shaddam IV's best efforts. <laughs> Not all love stories have a happy ending, y'all. Right. Another little anecdote about our mealy-mouthed boy Dalek that I wanted to share Recall that he came back at one point 
and claimed his daughter June and took her back to Giddy Prime with him. But he left Faradin and Wincisia. There's a story here, because apparently the reason he did that is because of a cobra incident. <laughs> this is incredible. Quote, an incident involving her mother's trained cobras in June's nursery made Dalek decide that his daughter's only chance of survival was away from her mother, end quote. Holy shit. My lord. <laughs> so fucking crazy. A cobra incident. The most dysfunctional family. Incredible. All right, one final thing I want to share about Dalek before wrapping up this morsel. In a single line in the Dune Encyclopedia, it's implied that Wincissia may have had a hand in having Dalek killed. At the start of the Dune Encyclopedia, there's this huge timeline of Dune, all 30,000 years of it, and for the year marked 10,204 AG, it states, quote, Count Dalek dies suspiciously in Thopter accident. Faradin's last name is changed to Carino. End quote. Mm. <laughs> That's it. That is mm. never mentioned ever again in the encyclopedia or anywhere else in Dune lore. Suspicious. Suspicious that those two things would happen in the same year. Knowing when Sissia, she had a pair of tigers take down that Thopter. <laughs> The pilot of the Thopter was a tiger. Was a tiger. No, no, he's very good. He's the best. How could it go wrong? Why is there a second tiger in the Thopter? It's just two. This two is best. They, <laughs> they hunt in pairs. Amazing stuff. I love the Carinos. I love the Fen Rings. HBO, <laughs> give me that succession style house Carino family drama. We need it. We oh. deserve it. <laughs> oh wow yeah there it is leo <laughs> there it is part six of this book club has been wrapped up rest in peace tony and tina rest in peace tony and tina we lost two good tigers today well two adequate tigers <laughs> <laughs> right they didn't get the job done so they could have been failures. better yeah they <laughs> ex ex expected more from their behavior to be fair <laughs> Our next episode, as we mentioned, is a mailbag episode. So send us your questions. Send us your thoughts. Doesn't have to be about the reading. Can be about other things. Can be silly, stupid questions about Dune generally or about our lives. Again, we'll we'll do our best to make it an engaging, fun episode, no matter what questions you send us. Yeah. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com is the email address to send us uh, questions, comments, concerns, memes pictures of your pets or you can use the mailbag questions channel in the discord can't wait to get your emails can't wait for that mailbag episode i always have so much fun with those yeah they're fun well friends there is no real ending it's just the place where you stop the recording but this podcast is always one step beyond logic so help spread the word of Mwadib and leave us a review on apple podcasts and spotify and be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path.
And dear listener, this philosophy lesson slash therapy session is going to cost <laughs> you around 150 USD. We'll send, we'll send we'll send you a bill in the mail in the coming week. Thanks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or or just share this podcast with a friend. You know, either way. Listen. Right, right. The bill will say cold hard cash, or just uh, tell someone about the show. Or leave us a five star review, please. <laughs> it helps grow the show.